Revelation chapter 8 tonight. Revelation chapter 8. I'm also going to ask you at the very beginning to go ahead and turn to uh, Joel, the book of Joel chapter 2. Uh, the book of Joel, Old Testament. There's uh, the last 12 books of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. Uh, Joel is the second one in. So after the book of Daniel, you have the book of Hosea, and he's the first what's called Minor Prophet, and then Joel would be right after the book of Hosea. So mark the book of Joel, and then turn to Revelation chapter 8. And as we come, just a little bit of a background, we started this series in Revelation in the five Sundays of May on Sunday morning. And we looked at each of the first five chapters on Sunday morning, and then just last week we switched our study of Revelation from Sundays to Tuesday nights. And we're going to be in Revelation for the rest of June and throughout July, but I am going to try to take two chapters a week. And I realize for a book like Revelation, that's just hitting the high spots. But I don't want us to get so bogged down in the details of Revelation that we lose what Revelation is really about. Many Christians feel that Revelation is mostly about the details of what's going to happen in the future. But actually, the book of Revelation, even the very first verse, tells us in chapter 1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse from. It simply means an unveiling or an uncovering. And literally, the book of Revelation is unveiling for us who Jesus Christ is in His glory. And, and why many, I think, Christians even, have a battle and struggle of getting into the book of Revelation is because it's, it's one book that if we don't get into, we end up having sort of an incomplete, fragmented picture of who Jesus really is. We've already seen that. That, that many people have in their mind, when they think of Jesus, they simply zero in on the humble servant of God who came to die for our sins, but they forget that He is the glorified Christ who now reigns in heaven and, and who one day is going to come and make things right on the earth. And He's going to set up His kingdom. And in order to do that, He's going to put down all demonic rebellion and all human rebellion against Him. And He's going to rule and reign. And in order to make things right, the Bible tells us He's going to pour out His wrath. In fact, one of the phrases we saw last week that many people just would have a hard time wrapping their minds around is the phrase in chapter 6 that this is all taking place during the tribulation because it is the wrath of the Lamb. And when you and I think of a Lamb, we don't think of wrath. And it's because that the Bible wants to remind us that yes, He is the Lamb of God, but as Revelation also taught us, He is the Lion from the tribe of Judah. And He is coming to rule and reign and set up His kingdom. So, Again, we've got to make sure that the image, the, the, the persona of Christ that we create in our own mind, the one that we base our lives on, is truly biblical. And it's not just half of the truth, it's all of the truth. And Revelation, more than any other book, gives us a picture of the glorified Christ. Not the one who came in humility and lived on the earth, died for our sins, and then rose and went back to heaven. 
So with that said, we saw last week that after the opening of this scroll that the Lamb of God, Jesus, took from God the Father, He began to open the seals. And as He opened the seals, judgments fell upon the earth. And, and we certainly saw those very sobering judgments. Last week, we saw that a fourth of all mankind are going to be destroyed in just one judgment during the tribulation period. So it's a horrendous time. How can you and I, as Christians, what, what can we take away from chapters like the ones we're going to look at tonight? Well, again, as I said last week, one of the things I think we take away is to remind ourselves of the tremendous contrast of destinies between the saved and the unsaved. And it, it should cause us to just be so grateful, <laughs> and that's even an understatement for what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ and the fact that by grace we're saved and that we know our eternal destiny. But it also should burden us and, and motivate us and inspire us to be witnesses and to share our faith more and to be more bold and courageous because folks without Christ uh, don't have anything to look forward to as far as eternity goes. So with that said, let's dive into it a little bit tonight. The Bible says in chapter 8, and when the Lamb, again, so notice the Bible is making very clear that these judgments are coming from the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, a half an hour of silence may not seem like much, but remember the context. Throughout the book of Revelation, God has told us that heaven is a place of noise. It's a place of continual worship and praise of God. There's always unbelievable singing and choirs and instruments and lightning and thunders and all this noise. So you can imagine that for a a half an hour now of total silence, that would probably be deafening silence. And, and the word silence there literally means a hush. I think it's a hush of expectancy about what is to come upon the earth. And again, a half an hour of silence may not seem like much to us, but even tonight, if I was to just stop in my teaching and everything was just to go silent for five minutes, five minutes would be a little awkward, right? Be like, you know. Because we're used to something. Well, even much more in heaven, they're used to hearing things. And so the Bible tells us that before the Lamb, or as the Lamb opens this seventh seal, there's this silence in heaven. And then John says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God. The word stand there means to be ready or prepared with no hesitation to do whatever God asks them to do. And I want to come back to that because for us tonight, I want to make this really practical. And one of the things I, I want us to, to think about tonight is, are we ready? Are we ready right now, even as Christians, to meet God? Are we in a good place with God? Do we understand that the Bible teaches us that Every one of us, even as believers, is going to have to give an account of ourselves to God. And the Bible says that if we know Jesus is coming back and we're going to have to stand before him, John says that should be a purifying hope. That we should be ordering our lives according to the fact that we know that one day we will stand before our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we ready? 
Even John said, hey, we're going to be like him for one day. We will see him as he is. Are we ready to meet him? And then readiness. Are we in a place spiritually where we are ready to be tapped on the shoulder by God for God to send us on some mission and give us some responsibility? Are we ready? I love what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, I'm ready to preach to those in Rome. It was like Paul was saying, hey, I've studied up, I'm prayed up, I'm fired up, I'm ready, God, send me in. Are you in that place? Are you ready? See, one of the things about the angels in Revelation is they're always ready. They're always prepared. They're always saying, okay, God, whatever you need, whatever you want. And unlike us as human beings, even Christians, there's no hesitation. When God asks them to do something, they go, well, let me think about it, God. I mean, Zoom, they're off to do whatever God asks them to do. Are we ready? Readiness. If there's two words I want you to take away from tonight's message, it would be the words readiness and responsiveness. And we're going to get to that one later on. Readiness and responsiveness. Are we ready and are we responding? And then the Bible says, another angel holding a golden censer came and was stationed at the altar. Now this is obviously here the altar of incense. A large amount of incense was given to him to offer up with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. Many, when they come to Revelation, don't realize that even Revelation and what's being talked about here is based on the Old Testament tabernacle. That's why it's important that Christians know the Old Testament and they know the tabernacle and the setup of the Old Tabernacle because the Bible says that that the, the things in heaven or I should say the things on earth, were simply copies or types of the things in heaven. And and there is an altar of incense in heaven. And the Bible says that, that there's the incense going up there. Now, obviously, with that altar of incense, just like there was in the tabernacle, just to give you a, a brief, not to prolong, this isn't about the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was set up that right before you went into the Holy of Holies, and remember, the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and he was only allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. That was it. So even though the altar of incense technically should have been inside the Holy of Holies, it was right outside the Holy of Holies because the high priest had to minister the the altar of incense all the time. He had to set it up. He had to stoke the coals. He had to bring the coals over. He had to put the incense in. So in order for the priest to have to deal with the daily dealings of the altar of incense, it had to be outside the Holy of Holies. And the altar of incense would literally fill the tabernacle and then go up to heaven, just like is pictured here. The point I want to make is this. You'll notice that this altar of incense is sort of symbolic of, and the incense symbolic of the prayers of the saints going up to God as this sweet-smelling fragrance and perfume. And, and one of the things that, that the Bible reminds us of is that one of the ways you and I stay ready and, and, and make ourselves ready, if you will, is through our prayer life. Our, our prayer life, the Bible teaches us, our prayer life is one of the things that keeps us in a state of readiness down here on earth. But the other thing I wanted to point out was, as as this altar of incense is flowing the incense up, another important point here is that the coals that were used to fire up the incense and get it hot so that it would smoke and go up 
were actually brought from the altar of sacrifice. And the reason why that's significant is because God wanted His people in the Old Testament and wants us to know the only way we have access to God, the only way our prayers get through to God is because we have access through sacrifice. And ultimately, like Paul said to the Romans, that's why it's one of the great benefits of us knowing Christ is our personal Savior is because we don't have access to God based upon our own righteousness, our own goodness. The only way we have access to God in prayer is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the coals coming off the altar of sacrifice and put on the altar of incense, again, was a reminder that the only way of access is through sacrifice. And the incense goes up with the prayers of all the saints. Now, I'm not sure if these are just the tribulation saints, the ones we saw last week who are murdered and butchered and slaughtered during the tribulation, or whether this is all of us and all our prayers. It it could be the tribulation saints that we saw last week who were saying to God, God, how long until you vindicate us on the earth. How, how long are you going to let this go on before you step in and intervene and make things right and do something? It could also be the prayers of all the saints since Jesus taught us to pray in his, in his model prayer uh, when he taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if truly that is our desire, then the book of Revelation is unfolding for us that exact fact. That's exactly what God is doing throughout the book of Revelation. He is answering, in a sense, the prayers of the saints since Jesus taught us to pray that, that we are desiring for God's will to be done on earth as it always is in heaven. Now, there are some people that maybe don't want things to change and they would rather just the earth go on like it is. But I can tell you from my perspective, I'm going to be so glad when Jesus comes and makes this all right. I don't like where the earth is going and where this world's going and where our society is going. And the only thing that's going to change it is not man becoming good enough. No, it's through divine intervention of God that the book of Revelation taught. That's the only way this is all going to change. In fact, we're going to see that later on. Man, I've got to get going here. We're never going to get through. So anyway, the smoke, verse 4, coming from the incense along with the prayers of the saints, ascended from God from the angel's hand. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. So notice the picture. As the prayers of the saints go up, judgment comes down. In a sense, the judgment of God also is not just God's you know, wrath being poured out, but it's also a response to the prayers of God or the prayers of of, of the saints of God that people down through history have said, God, come, make this world right. Uh, Bring your righteousness on this earth. Change this world. Uh, Let's go back to the way things, you know, you want to be. We talked about that Sunday, how God is going to, you know, restore it back to the Garden of Eden, if you will, and give man the dominion that he always desired us to have and make us fit to rule and reign. So this is what's happening. And so the Bible says that there were crashes of thunder, roaring, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Just simply, uh, again, uh, a, a reminder that judgment is coming. And folks, again, these judgments can tend to be overwhelming. I'm not going to make too many comments about it. I don't want to dwell on it tonight. 
I just want to let the Holy Spirit take these words and, and let him settle it in to our being however he wants to and in the time he wants to. So just follow along with me. Verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet and there was hail and fire mixed with blood and it was thrown at the earth so that a third of the earth was burned up. We have already seen how horrendous the wildfires are in Arizona. How many acres are being burned. We know how big that is. Can you imagine one day the Bible says in this one judgment, a third of the earth is going to be consumed by fire. A third of the trees were burned up, all the green grass burned up. And again, you can then begin to think what's going to happen as a result of that, because that's just in a sense the judgment. But there's other things then that that come out of that, that are a result of that, if you will. Verse 8, then the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain of burning fire. Not a mountain, again, don't make, it's like a great mountain of burning fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures living in the sea died and a third of the ships were completely destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet and a huge star, the word star there is the Greek word aster, where we get our word asteroid from. It's very possible that this huge star is simply a a major asteroid that finally hits the earth. It burns like a torch, it falls from the sky, it lands on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood or Bitter. So a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from these waters because they were poisoned. Highly infectious and deadly is what the Greek word means. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a moment and say this. Some Christians read the book of Revelation and they go, well, this is all symbolic. This is all allegory. And they try to read something into it. Dave will appreciate this tonight because Dave was asking me a Bible question yesterday and I shared this with him. The first principle of Bible interpretation is this. If it makes sense, seek no further sense. And people get into trouble when they begin to try to allegorize or make symbols certain things because everybody goes in different directions and my response is that if you take the plagues of egypt in the book of exodus that that really happened then why don't you take what's happening in revelation and what's the difference if you think that those gnats and frogs and all that and that the river the nile river turned to blood and all that if you think that was real in exodus then why are you not taking it literal in revelation and, what's, and how do you change all of a sudden? It gets really dangerous when people start going off on their own uh, symbolism and allegory of what all these things mean. You just take them for what it means. I mean, we might not understand it all. We might not be able to wrap our minds around it. But folks, I believe that all these things are really going to happen. And I realize even amongst Christians, they're like, ah, I don't know whether things are ever going to happen like that. Guess what? People that were living when Noah was building the ark said the same thing. I don't ever see it raining and flooding the whole earth. That just seems like that's a stretch. Guess what? When it started to rain, then they believed. But it was too late. The Bible is true and God is reliable. Verse 12, then the fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. Now let's remember something. The one who's doing this is the one who created it all. If anybody can control it, it's God. 
He's the one who created it. He can do with his creation whatever he wants to do. And let's remember that, that this is being poured out on, on humanity that has rejected him as the creator. They, they have said, we don't believe that he's the creator. In fact, they, as Paul said in Romans 1, worship creation and, and worship themselves more than they ever worship the creator. So they've rejected the creator. Now all of a sudden the creator is coming back to, to bear. And, and something else that's significant, I think, is the thirds here. In Revelation 8, because in a sense, humanity at this point has rejected the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And at this point in history, they have gone out to follow the unholy Trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And then the Bible says, There was no light for a third of the day, for a third of the night likewise. Verse 13, Then I looked and heard an eagle flying directly overhead, proclaiming with a loud voice. And there again, creation is at the disposal of God. If God can make a donkey talk to Balaam, he can make an eagle fly and talk as well. And the eagle says, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining sounds of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to blow them. The word woe simply is an exclamation of denunciation and grief that is to come upon the earth. Chapter 9. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen previously from the sky to the earth. Now there's debate about who this star is. I believe, first of all, that the star is an angelic being. In the Bible, when you try to seek interpretation, you go to other places where the word is used and see how it's used. And there are many places in the Bible where the word star is used to describe angelic beings. In fact, Satan himself is called a star in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus even says, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. So there are those times where those things help us to land. I'm not saying that I am dogmatic that this angelic being that's being described here who had previously fallen is Satan, but I think it very well could be. Notice he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, to the bottomless pit. What is that? It is the well of confined demons. You say, there's demons that are confined. Why are they confined? Well, I could give you my answer for that, but we don't have time for that tonight. But here's what I would like you to do. Keep your finger in the book of Revelation and just go back one book to the book of Jude real quick. To show you that there's other passages, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Jude also talks about this. In Jude verse 6, he says, You also know that the angels... The fallen angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence. He has kept in eternal chains in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. Now, we know that the Bible teaches like during Jesus's day that there were demons that were allowed, obviously, to roam around like they are today. They had certain freedom within the sovereignty of God. They oppressed people. They possessed people. So we know that not all fallen angels, all demons are locked up. But we know that the Bible teaches that for whatever reason, there was a group of fallen angels that went outside the boundaries that God gave them. And that that has biblical precedence too. If you read the book of Job, when Satan went to God and said, God, let me do this to Job. 
Under the sovereignty of God, God said, hey, Satan, you can do this, but you can't do this. So God, even within his sovereignty, allows Satan and the demonic forces a little bit of leeway, if you will. But if they step out, they face even further judgment. And so whatever these group of fallen angels did, they, they violated the boundaries that God gave them. And so God took them to this bottomless pit and confined them there until this day we're talking about in Revelation. Back to Revelation. The pit is open. He opened a shaft of the abyss and smoke rose out of it like smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And out of the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Now, again, I don't believe that these were, uh, I believe that this is a demonic force of fallen angels. And I think he's trying to describe what he is seeing here. Notice he says it's like scorpions, but it's not scorpions. It's like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth, the green plant or trees, which actually is exactly what uh, locusts would normally do. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead literally were set apart for God's special protection. The locusts were not given permission to kill them, but only to torture them, the other people on the earth, for five months. The word torture means to torment, to apply acute pain. And their torture was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. In those days, things are going to be so bad that people will seek death. Literally, the word means to crave, desire, but they will not be able to find it. They will long to die, literally lust to die, but death will flee from them. Now, the locusts looked, resembled horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like crowns similar to gold, and their faces looked like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron breastplates and the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. They have tails and stingers like scorpions and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails. And they have a king, a leader, a commander over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction or ruin, and in Greek, destroyer, Apollyon. Now again, I tend to lean that this is Satan. It doesn't have to be. It could be another fallen angel. But I think that what he's describing here is a demonic swarm being unleashed upon the earth. Verse 12, the first woe is past, but two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a single voice coming from the horns on the golden altar to this before God, saying to the sixth angel, The one holding the trumpet set free the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Good angels, if you will, and that's the way I describe them. Angels who did not fall never are bound in the Bible. So I believe that these four angels, again, he's describing here, are fallen angels. No good angels were ever tied up or bound in the Bible. And the Bible says, then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour, day, month, and year were set free to kill a third of humanity. A fourth of humanity has already been wiped out, and now a third of what's left is killed. 
Notice the number of this army that is, in a sense, being led by these four fallen angels. The number of soldiers on horseback was 200 million. I heard their number. Now, this is what the horses and their riders look like in my vision. The riders had breastplates. They were fiery red, dark blue, sulfurous yellow in color. The heads of the horses looked like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. A third of humanity was killed by these three plagues. That is, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses resides in their mouths and in their tails because their tails are like snakes having heads and inflict injuries. Now, up to this point, folks, I realize... This hasn't been one of those messages where you just leave church and click your heels and go, wow. But it's in the Bible and we need to read it and we need to talk about it. And we can even sit here or stand here tonight and try to reason it away like this is never going to happen. But it is. It is going to happen. Are we ready? So that we won't go through that? And are we living our lives in such a way that God can use our lives to try to turn other people to Christ and make sure that they're ready and prepared as well? And then the other main thing that I wanted to spend the last 12 minutes on tonight is this, because we can certainly apply this principle to us. That even though this is taking place during the Great Tribulation, we struggle with some of the same things. Notice after all this judgment, notice what the Bible says, verse 20. The rest of humanity, you would have thought after all they've experienced and all they have seen, people would be running saying, how can I, how can I accept God and how can I be forgiven? No, no. The rest of humanity who had not been killed by these plagues did not repent. Wow. By the way, let's not forget the word repent means a change of mind which results in a change of direction. They did not repent. And the Bible goes on to say they did not repent specifically of the works of their hands. Every time this phrase is used in the Bible, it refers to idolatry. To idolize. In other words, it is reminding us that we, you know, humanity in general idolizes the works of their hands. They idolize themselves. They put all these other people. But they never worship the one true God. And and the Bible teaches us that idolatry is always connected to demonism. That demons are always behind, and the influence of demons are always behind idolatry. Because if you and I or anybody else, like we talked about Sunday in Galatians 1, if we don't put God in His proper place, something else is going to fill that vacuum. So if God is not occupying the place He should in, in, in my life, something else or someone else is going to get in there and occupy that place. And that's exactly why the Bible goes on to say they did not stop worshiping demons. Now think about that. The demons are the ones who's inflicting all this pain on them. And yet they're still worshiping the demons rather than repenting and turning to God. They also don't stop worshiping idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk about. We live, even today, 
before the coming of Christ in an age of idolatry. And I'm talking way more than about the show American Idol. But we do. We live in a world that idolizes people and things and the works of their own hands. And I mean, and I'm just going to, I don't want to get off on this because it's really minor, but just to give you a perspective, I'm a sports person. I, I love sports. I have followed sports all my life. I felt like I grew up in the 60s and 70s watching some of the greatest baseball players who ever lived, especially before the steroid era. I mean, people who naturally could really play baseball. Not one of those guys ever got a statue. Now it's like everybody who plays for a team has to have a statue out in front of the stadium. It's like we live in this world where people want to make statues of themselves and idolize themselves and put their names on the hotels and stuff. So somehow, you know, it's all about us rather than about God. Instead of giving God his proper place, as Paul said, we worship the creature more than we do the creator. And then, verse 21, this idolatry... Not putting God in his proper place also has a moral result. The Bible says, furthermore, even during this horrendous judgment, they did not repent of their murders. Notice that's in plural. In other words, the tribu- we think that killing and murder is rampant now in the world. Wait till the tribulation. People will just murder and slaughter each other as if it's nothing. Human life will mean nothing to people then, as it really does to a lot of people today. It means absolutely nothing to them to kill some other human being. They also will not repent of their, in my Bible, the translation is magic spells. It is the Greek word pharmakon, where we get our word pharmacy from. Literally, what the Bible is saying is we will live in a time where people will be drug addicts. In fact, that word in the Greek language, the reason why it's translated maybe magic spells or something like that, is because it simply meant a practice that made someone susceptible to sin. And someone under the influence of drugs or something else is going to be more susceptible to sin than they are when they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to tell you that we live in a world of drug addicts today. Everybody's on drugs. In the tribulation, everybody will be on drugs. Of their sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneus. We think we live in a pornographic, perverted society now. In the tribulation, it's going to be even worse. Or of their stealing, theft, greed. They won't hesitate to take what is not theirs. So, again... Get the, get the picture here. Even though God is saying, you are getting these consequences because you have abandoned me, and if you will just simply turn to me, you know, you, no. We're going to persist in what we are doing. It, it shows, the Bible shows, this speaks to the hardness of the human heart. So with our time we have left, here's how I want to bring this around to practically apply this to our life and get to that word responsiveness. I want to start in the book of Joel in the Old Testament where I told you to turn to Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 
and 13. Again, right after the book of Daniel is the book Hosea, and then right after the book Hosea is the book of Joel. And in Joel 2, 12 and 13, here's what Joel recorded that the Lord said. Yet even now, the Lord says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God. In other words, repent. For He is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and boundless in loyal love, often relenting from calamitous punishment. And then I'd like you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Go back to the left, back through Hosea, back through Daniel, Ezekiel. Then you'll come to Lamentations. Jeremiah, all the way to Jeremiah chapter 5. You'll see how all these verses at the end here tie together. God is calling His people to repent. But notice what Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 5, verse 3. Lord, I know You look for faithfulness, but even when You punish these people, they feel no remorse. Even when You nearly destroy them, they refuse to be corrected. They have become as hard-headed as a rock. They refuse to change their ways. This is exactly what John is saying happens to a, a greater degree in the tribulation. It's happened throughout history. No matter what God has done or said, people can get so hard that they refuse to repent and give up what they're doing and turn to God. The next passage I'd like to turn to quickly is the Gospel of Luke. We don't have time to go into this great passage, Luke chapter 16 tonight, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 27. And let me just give you a quick background as you're turning there. Luke 16, 27. Jesus is giving us a story of two men, one who went to the destiny of hell, the other who went to the destiny of heaven. He gave us a little glimpse into eternity, if you will. And the man who's talking to Abraham here is the man who went to hell. He's tormented. And in verse 27, we just pick it up where it says, The rich man said to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, don't miss this, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Old Testament. They have the Word of God. They must respond to them. Then the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Notice Abraham's reply. This is a key verse in the New Testament. He replied to him, if they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Don't miss what, why Jesus is sharing this. He is telling us that the Bible is sufficient and that the Bible is powerful, like the author of Hebrews says, sharper than ever, any two-edged sword. And, the, and, and God is saying, People say today, oh, if God would just do this miracle in this person's life or just bring this circumstance into this person's life, they would change. And God is saying, you don't understand. If they won't hear my powerful word, if my powerful word that is more powerful than any circumstance, any miracle that I could ever do, if they won't respond to my word, they will not respond to anything else. 
And that's what makes it so sad today that even in our Christian culture, the, the Bible is being demoted and de-emphasized. We, don't, we, we, don't, we can do church without the Bible being the center. Really? Okay. But God said that it's only through the power of the Bible that people can truly change. It's not through experience. Jesus rose from the dead. He showed himself alive. People still didn't believe. He raised people from the dead. He healed the blind. He did miracles before them. They still didn't believe. Because God says, if people's hearts are not ready to respond to my word, they won't respond if judgment comes, circumstances come, miracles happen. See, it's not an experience-oriented faith from God's perspective. It's a word-based faith. God wants us to be responding to his word Always. So, we end with this. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 7. What can we take away from this? Readiness and responsiveness. Yeah, The judgments we read about in Revelation 8 and 9 are horrific. Hard for us maybe to even comprehend. But they're coming. More importantly, we can't can't change what the future holds. But what you and I can control right now in our lives is our readiness and our responsiveness to God right now at this moment in our lives. That's all God cares about. He doesn't even care about us thinking about, well, God, I'll be responsive tomorrow. He wants you and I right now in this room tonight, 8 o'clock, right here in Chandler at Basha High School, to in a sense say yes to whatever the Spirit of God is saying to us right now. That's the one thing we can do right now. And so the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Hebrews 3, verse 7, Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of testing, in the wilderness. Look at verse 12. He tells Christians, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. Exhort one another each day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. You see, sin deceives and brings hardening to the heart. That's why, again, we live in a world of addiction. Because people get trapped in their sin and they can't get out of it themselves. They think for a while like they, they're going to be able to overcome whatever this is. And they realize the deeper in they go that this thing wraps around them, whatever it is, like a python, and they have no power to be able to overcome it on their own. But through Christ, anything can be overcome. Anything. So notice in verse 15. He says, as it says, oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And one more time, verse seven of chapter four. Oh, that today 
you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts. Folks, we have seen tonight that in spite of the unbelievable judgments being poured out upon the earth, that the Bible tells us that in spite of all that, men will not repent. And so the message and lesson for me out of this was, wow, God, you want me to not harden my heart. You want me to continually be responsive. And one of the things that you and I as Christians need to realize is that every time we shut off the Holy Spirit, every time the Word of God comes rushing into our life and is is working in our life and wants to take us in this direction or that or, or prompt us to do this or not to do this, every time we shut it down and shut it off, we begin to harden our heart. And it becomes even harder than the next time we hear the Word of God or the Holy Spirit comes into our life to respond in a proper way because we begin to put up a a shell around our heart that the Word of God cannot penetrate. So it behooves all of us here tonight who know Christ to say, God, help me to be responsive. Whatever your spirit is leading me to do, whatever your spirit is saying to me, whatever your word is saying to me, let me respond. Keep me. Keep me from a hardened heart. And if you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ, I'd like to encourage you to do so. You'll never regret it. You will escape the judgment that's coming upon the earth from the Lamb of God. Not only will your sins be forgiven, but you'll experience life at a level you never dreamed when you have Christ in the very center of your life. There's someone here tonight you'd like to talk to me about accepting Christ. I'd love to talk with you. We've got other folks here that would love to talk with you as well. Don't leave here tonight without getting to someone that you know knows the Lord and can sit down and talk with you about what it, what it would mean to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving all of us in this world enough that you don't tell us all the sweet stuff all the time. That, God, you give it all to us. You give us the really cool verses and the great promises and the encouragements and all of that. But you also give us these very difficult passages of Scripture. And sometimes, Lord, that's good because even as Christians, we can become pretty complacent and comfortable. And Lord, sometimes we have to be shaken out of our complacency. So God, tonight, I just pray more than anything else that for each of us here tonight, whether we're a Christian or we're not, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to take your word and do with it whatever he wants to, and that we just would follow wherever he wants us to go. That we would do whatever he wants us to do. And that we would not one more time say no to you. 
that we would not allow our heart to be hardened just a little bit more, but that we would stay sensitive and willing to change and repent. God, go with us. Give us a burden for the lost again, Father. And give us a wonderful week of Christian fellowship and encouragement. Bring us together on Sunday that we might once again hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. Have a great rest of the week.